Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So hello there and welcome to another episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. Once again, my name is Adam Burns and joining me on this episode of the podcast, fan favourite as usual, Mr. Courtney Pine. Courtney, how are you this evening? Are you doing good? Good evening, ladies and gents. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Um, yeah, it just feels like we're uh, pretty much back to normality now. I don't want to get too carried away, but um, you know, we've been getting our sporting fix lately. Yeah, and you know we've had it. what three three races now, haven't we? Like it, all, it, it almost feels like we're all deep, deep into a season, and we have so many things to talk about already. So it, it does. It just it feels like normal, and it feels great. Yeah, it's becoming a weekly occurrence. Of course, there's no race this weekend. The first uh, gap in the season, of course, we'll be talking about some other updates that I've been hearing on the. Uh, Rumour mill regarding the future events. We've got 10 so far, maybe a few more to add to that list, but we'll get to that later on. But um, got to talk about a big milestone for us, Courtney. It's uh, episode number 20 of the DNF1 oh, podcast. Yeah, brilliant. Um, 20 episodes in. And uh, going strong, may I say. It's absolutely flown by. I mean, granted that we've only had pre-season testing a lot of filler episodes, a lot of good ones, I might add as well. So definitely check those out if you're new to this podcast. But well <laughs> of course, but um, yeah, twenty episodes in, and uh, we're well into the season now. The o- open first few uh, early days, early races, if you like, are well underway now, and we're starting to see the picture of the 2020 championship reveal itself before our eyes at the moment. So. Um, before we get into that, obviously, because we're now up to episode number 20, we just want to uh, have a little bit of a shameless cheeky plug for you, lovely lot. So, a few episodes ago, you would have noticed, a few, uh, few of you eagle-eyed, that we advertised a little snippet or a clip of a beginner's guide to Formula One racing. Now, this is something that has been requested to us from a lot of fans, new and old, about 
an opportunity for us to describe the basics of, of Formula One and the essentials that we personally feel that you guys would appreciate and need to know in order to enjoy Formula One racing as much as we do. And so as a result of this, we've worked very, very hard and prepared our first proper video, if you like, and that will be going live on the YouTube channel on Friday, Friday morning. So make sure to check that out. And of course, if you are new to the channel, make sure to subscribe to the channel, hit that notifications bell, and you will be able to see that video as soon as it goes live. So that's this Friday, the 22nd of July. I think it's the 20th today. Just checking my calendar, make sure. It... Oh no, it's 23rd, excuse me. Uh, oh no, Yeah, see... 23rd today. 21st today so sorry excuse me i'm terrible can't get my dates right so that's friday the 24th of july make sure i got that right so friday 24th july make sure to check out the youtube channel dnf1 f1 podcast there you can't miss it and it will be a beginner's guide to dnf1 uh, so it's a formula one racing from dnf1 and it's in two parts so this will be part one and hopefully part two might be available the friday afterwards or perhaps the following weekend we'll have to see but Make sure to check that out, and of course, let us know what you think. Make sure to like, share that video, try and make it go viral if you can. We'd really appreciate that, and obviously, leave a comment, say hi, and let us know what you think. So, um, that shameless plug out of the way. Of course, we're very excited about that, but um, let's crack on to the main topics now. The uh, news at hand, Courtney. Hungarian Grand Prix this weekend. Another interesting race for different reasons. And of course, once again, one thing that does seem to remain constant, the champ, Lewis Hamilton, once again, showing everybody who's boss and getting that big fat W under his belt once again. The 86th win of his career, the second of the season, which catapults him to the top of the Drivers' Championship. Um... After a rusty start in his, you know, first race at Austria, um, it was pretty obvious he was getting distracted. There was a lot of politics going on, wasn't there? He was getting targeted by. He's just got straight into the groove after that, you know, after that minor setback, straight into the groove. Um, and yeah, and I'd like to touch on um, what you mentioned previously, that after going to two different types of circuits, we're now getting an idea of how the pecking order is turning out. And if you're a non Mercedes fan, it's, it's pretty ominous because, you know, Austria is a little bit more power hungry. So, you know, fans, non Mercedes fans might have gone, well, we're going to a circuit which isn't as reliant on power. And um, they might do, uh, they might, the, the pack might get closer together, but, Blimey! When I saw those qualifying results, I thought it's 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 my phrase recently. It's a 2014 to 2016 feeling all over again. Yeah, it started to be quite ominous in that regard. And you're absolutely right to point out qualifying, Courtney. I was just going to reference that for those of you that haven't seen. Obviously, in qualifying, Mercedes were well out in front of everybody else. The only car that got anywhere near them was Racing Point, and even then, they were a second behind. But the most memorable moment of qualifying was when both Valtteri Bottas and Lewis Hamilton went through turn four round Hungary, which is a sharp uh, left-hander, which most drivers would usually drop a gear, sometimes two gears in the older Formula One cars. 
lay off the throttle temporarily just to keep the car stable and then put your foot straight on to make sure you don't lose any speed. Keep it nice and flowing onto the left-hand side for turn five. But the Mercedes, both of them, went in there, didn't lift their foot off the throttle at all and uh, stayed in seventh gear. It was absolutely incredible. One of the most difficult corners on the Formula One calendar for a lot of different reasons. And they almost made it into a straight. It's quite frightening how good that car really is. And I think for the first time this season, we really got to see what kind of golf that exists between Mercedes and the rest of the field. And uh, I've got to say, it. I mean, if we weren't thinking we had those 2014-16 vibes before, they certainly are there now, maybe even stronger than they were before. So uh, quite scary. Yeah, because, yeah, because even... Even during a race, like Lewis was about well before before he pitted towards the end, he had a free pit stop, didn't he? Because he was twenty five seconds ahead of Max. Yes. You just wait. You always sense that they've got time in hand, regardless of how like, far ahead they were. So like, I don't know. Well, they were in like a certain mode, and Max started to catch up a bit. I don't know, like a second or so. They'll just they'll just go into a different mode. Like, I, I, they, they are literally cruising. And to be honest, I, I was surprised that Bottas didn't get the overtake on Verstappen, even though we know he, he rings the he rings everything he can out of, out of the car. I was surprised that Bottas didn't get the overtake because it's pretty obvious, you know, particularly in um, qualifying, how far ahead the Mercedes is. I mean, you know, I'm saying this a lot heartedly, but uh, it seems that the pack are behind um, last year's Mercedes, let alone this year's. Well, I think this is by evidence of what Racing Point are doing and the same old joke about them obviously having very, very similar hallmarks to the W10 that Mercedes ran last year, their championship winning car from 2019. And the fact that Racing Point seemed to be the next fastest car, even around Hungary, was quite ominous as well. So it's an interesting point you make about Valtteri Bottas. I think the caveat that you would throw in favour to support Valtteri Bottas in this instance would be that whilst the Mercedes is notoriously quick, almost scary how fast they are in when they're out in front, there's always been that tendency with them to struggle to overtake cars or to follow cars. And I think in the nature of Formula 1, when you've got the fastest car or the car that's the most aerodynamically efficient, you do tend to have that trade-off where you do struggle yeah. to follow other cars, at least in the current era. Hopefully by 2022, when the new regulations kick in, that will be a thing of the past, which will definitely be music to Mercedes' ears, assuming they can build a car similar in terms of dominance to what they have right now. But, well, of course, we'll worry about that then. But, importantly, what it does do, Courtney, is it allows Lewis Hamilton to extract the absolute maximum required from his race and get the win and the fastest lap almost completing the grand slam with the exclusion of practice although that really to me isn't too relevant I think pole race win and fastest lap are suitable enough and he did that once again and of course that now moves into the top of the championship for the first time this season and we're already starting to see the odd error and the odd mistake from Valtteri Bottas and of course I'm referring to the jumpstart controversy now from what I understand of that incident looking into that I felt it was a pretty slam dunk penalty for the jumpstart it just seemed that on the video evidence that we had that Valtteri Bottas's Mercedes started to roll before the lights had gone out and even though he had stopped and compromised his start he 
jumped the start, which normally would be a 10-second stop-and-go penalty or a drive-through penalty, either which would be the best part of 20 or 30 seconds, whichever one it would have been. And, of course, that wouldn't have made a difference to his overall position. He would have still come third if they'd have added the time penalty. But, nonetheless, there is a precedent that needs to be enforced here. Now, I don't, what did you think of it, Courtney? Did you think that was a penalty? Um, well, the, the defence is that even though he moved forward, he didn't go past the white line. And I, I don't know. I don't know if the stewards considered that, you know, he did lose a few places at the start. And I'm, I'm just wondering, if he hadn't lost places at the start, maybe they would have given him a penalty? Possibly. My only uh, my only criticism of that um, sort of response, and of course that's if that's their defence, the only criticism of that defence is we're basically judging a jump start on the premise that a driver has, uh, get, whether they've gained an advantage or not, which isn't what a jump start is all about. Now, of course, I'm looking through the F1 terminology here uh, on their website or on their app. Uh, and it's a good app. It does give you a lot of information. And so I definitely recommend those of you that haven't downloaded it to definitely have a look. But according to the F1 app and the F1 website, based on the rules governed by the FIA, a jump start is defined as when a driver moves off his grid position before the five red lights have been switched off to signal the start and sensors detect premature movement and a jump start earns a driver a penalty. Now, Matt Macy, the... Um, uh, the, the race director replacing Charlie Whiting from last season, of course, he referenced the sensors and he said that, of course, we had the data with Mercedes. The sensors did not pick up any premature movement and therefore we could not administer a penalty. Now, the problem with that is, and he claimed that this is something they've used for a long, long time. And of course, we had the incident with Valtteri back in Austria in 2017, where he had the almost perfect getaway almost too true and it seemed for all the while that there was no way he could guess that get it right without guessing now of course with the uh, jump start regulations they do have a bit of a threshold where a driver can't possibly react beyond a certain time threshold yeah meaning that if they do react within that time threshold it's a guess and therefore a jump start now of course they, that wasn't punished back then um cast your own opinion on that if you like but since then for me, I find it strange that we're relying on sensors when we can see video evidence that Valtteri had moved. And under the terminology of a jump start, regardless whether they use the sensors or not, Valtteri does move before the lights go out. And as a result of that, regardless of whether he's behind his grid slot and should move in, he has jumped the start. The only reason, as you said, Courtney, rightly pointed out, that has saved him on this occasion is because he stopped and lost so many places. But for me... I don't think that's suitable enough. That's kind of like saying, um, you know, you've crashed into like an extreme example to as a metaphor. You've had a crash with someone deliberately and took them out of the race, but it's okay because you were both 18th and 19th in the race. It, it's, so I'm, 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 I'm guessing you just want some consistency on the matter. I just think there's going to be an occasion where another driver, maybe Bottas in the future, who knows, um, does the same thing will get a penalty because you always get drivers with jump starts and then people will be crying, well, why didn't Bottas get this? Where's the consistency? Now, Kimi Raikkonen got a penalty for his conduct on the grid and that was a different thing because I remember reading someone brought Kimi Raikkonen's penalty up. The reason Kimi Raikkonen got a penalty was because he parked his car in the wrong grid slot 
Because of course he was starting in the wrong position. And the reason this had happened was because he was starting at the back and the two Hasses went into the pits and Raikkonen ended up put, putting his car in the wrong grid slot. Now, of course, Kimi's not used to starting at the back, even in the Alpha. No, he's not. But uh, he, got, he got a penalty for his conduct. So I, I just want to see some consistency. And I felt like the FIA had made a mistake on their decision, or the stewards had, and their defence was blaming the technology saying all oh, the sensors messed up or the sensors didn't pick up the movement because the video cameras saw it and usually in other decisions, in other incidents, video evidence seems to be suitable enough. So I'm not sure why that's not the case in this incident. But um, that that's my personal opinion on it. I, I just want to see a bit more consistency with these decisions. So moving on to the next part, of course, we've mentioned a lot Mercedes and of course how brilliant they've been. I think... Before we go any further, do we feel that this is already a two-driver championship, Courtney? I mean, you don't want to get too carried away after, what, three races, but it's very rare, you know, where you'll see, you know, shall we say the second-place team close the amount of time that there is between Mercedes and Red Bull right now over a course of a season. You know, they've got a close. You're, you're, you're looking about a second a lap right now, and it's really difficult. Oh, you know, for those for those who know it, well, they'll know that it's very difficult to close in how much time of a course of a season with, you know, upgrades. You know, and particularly in, you know, the engine sense, it seems that Mercedes, who were the original benchmark for the engine, and they, they fell back in the past season or so, but it just seems they've just gone full steam ahead of it, and they're just so far ahead in the engine department again. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why that seems to be the case. And of course, we'll go into that a little bit later on in this episode because it is an important thing to mention. And uh, I have a theory of why this is the case, but um, we'll cover that later on. But moving on to Red Bull, I think we're both in agreement that despite Racing Point's heroics, Red Bull arguably still have the next best car. It's just a case of being able to find that sweet spot to actually extract the maximum because I don't think you and I believe that they've done that yet. I think that's been their struggle this season. Yeah. They certainly haven't digressed. They've just struggled to find that sweet spot where they it's can a get, very, you know. It's, it's a very twitchy car and over a course of a season, I think it's going to cause them problems. It's very erratic. I think that's probably the way to describe it. Hmm. Yeah, I think you, know, it's a point. The, you know, the performance is all over the place. It's got, it's, 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 it, it can just spin randomly. You know, like the warm-up let by Max. Yeah, I know it's in wet conditions, but that was a bizarre incident. And for me, I don't know. The things, do you know what? The best way to describe the car is probably a little bit, you know, a little bit Bambi on ice. You're right, there seems to be like this perfect spot. And if it isn't in that perfect spot, a little bit like, you know, a little bit of like um, an F1 car on slicks. It has to stick on, you know, that race line. Or if, it's, if it touches a wet patch, it's going to spin. It's almost as if the red ball is a bit like that. Well, we covered this in pre- yeah we covered this in preseason testing, and I think if you cast your minds back to one of the f- first few episodes of the podcast, Courtney, we talked about how the Red Bull will quite often spin at high speeds, trying yeah. to throw itself into corners, as Max so often likes to do, and Alex Albon to an extent. They do drive as if they want to throw their car into corners, and that's always a good thing. And and we felt there was an imbalance in the rear downforce. We felt that they were carrying too much. Now. For those of you unfamiliar with how the downforce works on a car and why the balance is significant, of course, you can apply as much downforce to the car as you want. But 
if you apply an imbalance having too much front downforce, then the car is going to oversteer. The, the back end's going to be loose. It's going to be great at the front, but the rear end is going to be loose. It's not going to grip. So you won't be able to get on the power on the exit. Whereas in Red Bull's case, what they have is perhaps too much rear downforce where the rear of the car is thrown in, but it just won't bite. Yeah. And it ends up spinning around quite easily at high speeds. It just can't control it mid-corner and end up in a bit of a tank slapper. And it does seem that that still is happening for Red Bull in practice. Not so much in the race, but definitely in practice. And the car does seem to be difficult from a drivability perspective. We know Max likes to extract the absolute maximum out of the car, and we definitely believe he's doing that. But right now, he seems very frustrated in his language. He's very much on the defensive. It's almost like he's realises already this season, despite all the hope and all the ambition that perhaps pre-season testing had given Red Bull, Mercedes, whether they were hiding their pace or they found even more in the uh, time off uh, owing to COVID, they're now in a position where that Red Bull is no longer capable of challenging Mercedes uh, on a regular basis and, until they actually find that sweet spot and improve the car. And, and it's frustrating, well, yeah. Max, because another I mean... year... Yeah, because you, you can't blame him, really, because a lot of people, including ourselves, are saying this this could be the year that he could challenge for his first World Championship. Well, I said, yeah. Yeah. You know, that that was your call. No, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want to call it off just yet, you know, despite what I just said. You don't want to you know, be, it'd be unwise of me to say, oh, it's 100% done, because that, we all know that's not how sport works. You know, there could be, a, there could be um, mechanical issues for Mercedes that put them straight back into the Championship. But in terms of raw pace... They, they are, generally speaking, over the course of the season, I feel they're going to be way behind. And it must, it must be um, frustrating for Max, because, you know, am I, am I right in saying that if he doesn't get it this season, he'll lose that youngest world champion status? Because that's what, that's, that's what he's been after, really, hasn't he? That's been the main thing. Yes. He, he, was after, he, was, he wanted to beat um, Vettel's record. I think, yes, it might... I, I'm, I have to check myself, but I believe, yes, this is the last year that either he or Charles Leclerc can achieve that milestone mm. of being the youngest world champion that Sebastian Vettel still currently holds and for all intents and purposes looks very much likely to continue with that obviously with the I think the only driver left in the field outside of them is Lando Norris that can achieve that which uh, the way he's been driving you can never rule that out with Lando at the moment he seems to be yeah. uh, improving quite a lot but yeah and I think with Red Bull it is a big problem they have to answer. And I think it, this brings us nicely towards the Alex Albon situation. And uh, I think we'll talk about this a little bit before we go to the break. But Alex Albon, of course, qualifying struggled. Qualified outside the top 10, struggling for pace uh, in Q2. He complained on both occasions. That he got stuck out behind the Ferraris and got stuck in traffic. And it cost him a lot of time. And, and it certainly seemed that way, that the traffic he faced on a track like Hungary where... The turbulent air and the weight can really cost you a lot of time if you're put out in traffic and hungry, more so than other tracks. It really does. And uh, drivers can feel this from as far back as two and a half to three seconds behind the car ahead. That's how powerful the turbulent air can be for a Formula One car. But what was interesting about that is Red Bull are a team that's usually very, very efficient in their strategy and how they're able to get their drivers in those sweet situations where they're able to get the most out of the car without any impositions. But for poor Alex, it's not been the easiest start to the season for him. And 
Red Bull aren't doing him any favours. And I'm going to play devil's advocate here. So if you are a Red Bull fan, um, I do appreciate, obviously, if you're not happy with what I'm about to say, but it does seem to me that perhaps we are starting to see once again that this Red Bull team cannot handle having two drivers, two quick drivers. And by that, I mean they have Max Verstappen, who is an extremely talented driver, world championship material, absolutely, but has never really had the car to do that. And the team, like so many teams in the past that have been successful, have diverted all their resources in his basket to give him the best platform possible. Now, as a result of that, over the last couple of years since Max has been in that team, he's had three or four different teammates now. I think I think Alex is his third, actually, in fairness. And... Once again, we're starting to see a talented driver in Alex Albon starting to make question his team not able to deliver the performances that they want, at least in qualifying, because in the race, he did a good job to get fifth place. But it's starting to seem once again that Red Bull are diverting their attention towards Max rather than realising, actually, we've got two drivers. We need to show Alex a bit more love and making him look a bit of a fool, especially in qualifying. Well, yeah, you know... I always felt that them losing um, Ricciardo was a big loss, hmm. and we we all know that's why he left. We all know that he he knew that you know he wasn't the the main man at Red Bull. You know, and, and, and let's be honest with Red Bull. This isn't the first time they've done this. They do like to have a golden boy. Like there's one thing having a, a number one driver, and we all know that some teams have that. But they're very very open. Like it was very much the case with Vettel and, and Webber. Hmm. That you know the, the Vettel was the golden boy, he was the poster boy of Red Bull, and it does seem like the same things happening with Verstappen, and um, and we saw Ricciardo. He had he had some great drives. See, like in, in the right car, Ricciardo could challenge for a championship, and they did, they didn't make him feel like he had he, he stood a chance. You know, if they, if Red Bull had a championship winning car, he knew that they wouldn't give him what he needed because they'd be giving the resources to Verstappen, and that's why he left. And you're right, it just seems like the same thing's starting to happen with Albon. Albon isn't really being given uh, a fair chance to um, spread his wings, to be honest, and that wasn't pun intended. Um, but yeah, they haven't. Like, it's, it's a shame to see because you've got this kind of this, this golden generation who kind of, you know, brace each other in karting. You know, Norris, Russell, obviously Albon and Leclerc, and, and the rest of them are getting... Even Russell, in a weird way, getting performances out of a poor car, generally speaking. And Albon hasn't had the chance to make the headline yet. I know he's close to getting to a couple of podiums, but he's very much in the shadow of Verstappen at um, Red Bull. And, you know, people around the paddock and the general public are starting to notice it now. Yeah, and it's a very difficult place to exist in, a very difficult place to get out of as well, as we've seen. Um, of course, Danny Ricciardo leaving Red Bull a couple of years ago to join Renault. That was a huge bombshell, but the reasoning was quite sound under the circumstances. And of course, Pierre Gasly as well, who drove very, very well for Toro Rosso, as it was back then, got the promotion into Red Bull and really, really struggled. And I think one real eye-opener for me was watching the Drive to Survive documentary that Netflix made on yeah. that season. And it, it was quite telling how much... Red Bull 
as difficult as it was for Gaslian, and it, it's a real pressure cooker. You have to be able to live in that environment to survive as a top level driver, and perhaps Gasly. He was breaking. He was, was breaking mentally. You, you, yeah. You know, you, you got it spot on. Like you can just tell. You can tell by like his his demeanour that he was almost mentally broken by what was going on at Red Bull. Yeah, and I, I don't think he received the right level of support. It was almost like, yeah, things are difficult. We get that, but especially when he moved on, it was almost like there was being made of a mockery of him, almost made fun of him. And yeah, for me, I mean, if, you know, forgive any sort of bias if you if you like, but that just doesn't resonate well with me in terms no. of how you should be tr- getting the most out of your drivers. And of course, now Gasly's gone back to Toro AlphaTauri. Now it is, of course, last season he got that podium in Brazil, and he's driving very, very well. He's driving very, very well. The best I've seen him drive in in a good couple of years. And I feel like Franz Tost is able to put that arm around someone like Pierre Gasly because we know he's quick. He's a former GP2 champion and we know he can do well. So hopefully for Gasly that continues. And of course for Alex Albon, as George Russell quite rightly pointed out in his interview after qualifying, that Alex was made to look a fool there. And we know Alex is a very quick team and perhaps Red Bull need to show him a little bit more love and perhaps realise, not that he said this, but implying that Red Bull have to realise they have two drivers. This isn't the Max Verstappen show. And uh, and I don't mean that as a criticism of Max in particular. Max wants to build that team around him as Hamilton does with Mercedes and Charles Leclerc done with Ferrari like Vettel before him. You need that. But you have two drivers for a reason. So um, hopefully in Alex's case, he can get that support he needs, improve his performance, and that will only help Red Bull as well in their do you quest. Reckon, do you reckon Max Verstappen's fan base has a little bit to do with that? Because as as we know, as as great as it is to see, we do know that Max does have a very large and intense fan base. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. yeah, I think so. Um, sorry, um, no, I, I think he does, and it definitely does. Because from a business perspective, and we don't tend to use this very often on this podcast, but there are Formula One fans that will support teams like myself, and yeah. I, I think it's fair to say, to Courtney, that you. I don't know if you still are, but you used to be one of those fans that would support a particular driver. That's right, um, yeah. And, you know, we can talk about entertaining certain scenarios where if one driver went to another team, would you support them? But and, and that's something that happens in Formula One. You do tend more often than not to get fans that support the driver. And there's no doubt in my mind that if Max Verstappen went to a Ferrari or a Mercedes or even a Racing Point or Aston Martin his legions of fans from Holland and around the world would most likely follow him elsewhere. And Red Bull are aware of this. I mean, could you imagine going to the Red Bull ring and all of a sudden all them Dutch fans that once supported Max are now wearing Ferrari tops or Mercedes tops or, you know, well, they wouldn't. They'd be wearing orange shirts. But nonetheless, um, you know, it's the same thing. And and Red Bull know this. So uh, absolutely. And, And Christian Horner pointed this out, that they are in a precarious position where they have a top quality driver. And if they don't provide him with the the tools he needs, they're going to lose him. They, and they this happened with Sebastian Vettel. All right, he, he had a fondness for Ferrari and always wanted to emulate the Michael Schumacher scenario. Um, but Max Verstappen, it, it's the same thing. Uh, you know, his aspirations are to win world championships. And absolutely, there's no doubt in my mind that if he cannot get it at Red Bull and he can get it somewhere else, after a while, he will try to man- manifest or manufacture a move elsewhere. So, I, I personally feel that 
regardless, I, I feel that Max Verstappen will be the guy to replace Lewis when he retires. I think that's what will happen. And I'm sure Red Bull are aware that Lewis could retire the next, what, two, maybe three seasons. So they, they, they know they're in a race. Again, sorry, pun unintended. <laughs> they are in a race against time with Max. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's a really good point. I think we should uh, use this as an opportunity now to uh, take a break. And uh, we will come back and we will discuss a few more teams, of course, what's going on at Racing Point, obviously the Ferrari situation, how that's changed, and uh, cover a few other important incidents for the uh, Hungarian Grand Prix. So uh, make sure to uh, come back in the next few minutes and we will return for part two. So hello and welcome back to the second part of the DNF1 F1 podcast. And uh, yeah, just off the air, Corny and I were having an interesting chat. They almost forgot that we weren't recording. So um, we'll bring it right around to what we were talking about. And that was racing points. So, God, the racing points seem to be the talk of the paddock since pre-season testing, of course, once again, with their uh, version, if you like, of the 2019 Mercedes W10 that they are running as the RP20. Now, of course, we know that through listed standard parts that they've purchased, which are within the rules. And of course, they've admitted countless times to making observations and taking photos of the Mercedes from last season and designing their own version, as they claim, which is currently being investigated, of course, to the point where, in some cases, Corny, it's fair to say they have the second fastest car in some regards at the moment. Yeah, it seems particularly in qualifying. Um, in, in Hungary, they were way ahead of the rest of the pack and I mean I have I have mixed opinions on it um it's it's, it's nice to see another team in like in the fold you know it's, it's not it's not just Mercedes Red Bull and Ferrari taking up the top six like I, like I like I do like to see a bit of a mix up there but I do understand the sentiment of a lot of fans that this car seems to be way too similar to last year's Mercedes so I, I do I do. I, I can. I can understand why there is some kind of resentment towards it. But you want. You want to see new teams in the mix. But you, I don't know. You. You want to see it done in a certain way, don't you? Yeah. No. Absolutely. And of course, if Racing Point are found to have not broken the rules, and all they've basically done is take photos and observations and use uh, intellectual property that was legal in previous years to design their car now, then. Quite honestly, that's a genius move when you think about the state of play in Formula 1 at the moment where the plan was to only have one year of these regulations before the 2021 rules came into fruition. Now, of course, we've got that held back until 2022, meaning that if this didn't work out for them, they would only suffer for a year. But the fact that it's worked for them so well, they've effectively got a very strong car for two seasons at least. So it's all fun and fine and well, but... As you mentioned quite rightly, it's almost too fast. It's almost too much of an improvement. Now, of course, the caveat to this is that Ferrari and Red Bull, relatively speaking, have regressed, although their cars are certainly faster than what they have last year because obviously they'd be running last year's cars if they were faster than this year's ones, which they're not. So impressive showing from them again, of course. Third and fourth in qualifying. Uh, They ran mediums, the slower tyres in quality two because, of course, that was meant to be the race tyre. But of they didn't get to use that because of the wet conditions at the start of the race. But um, yeah, I've got to say, 
it, it does seem a little bit strange what's going on with that investigation. It hasn't been swept away by the FIA. Now, why I mentioned this and why this is significant, I did talk about this last week, so I won't go into it like I did then. But Nicholas Tambasis, who is basically the policeman, if you like, of the FIA, basically has all the designs of the cars that are submitted to him before the season starts. They're able to ratify them and deduce that they are not of the intellectual property of other teams and that they are all designed under the regulations correctly. One comment he made that was quite interesting was regarding the issue with brake ducts. Now, last week's episode, I mentioned that brake ducts were listed as a standard listed part, which could be purchased from another team. However, this year, they are not. Now, the problem, this is why Renault picked the brake ducts in particular, because they are of the opinion that those brake ducts are very similar, if not carbon copies, if you like, pun intended, of last year's W10. Now, with that in mind, that would assume that these were designed based on intellectual property belonging to Mercedes, which of course is illegal. He mentioned that this was one of the parts that kind of slipped through the cracks. They didn't actually review or check these because of the change in regulations. So they didn't believe that they were going to end up in a situation where a team would be breaking the rules. Now, of course, Racing Point's defence would simply be, well, we had this intellectual property last season. We can't just forget what we know. And therefore, that's why we've used that to design uh, a piece like brake ducts in this instant to be very similar to what the Mercedes was last year because we were already aware of it last season when it was legal. So with that in mind, of course, he's mentioned that Racing Point will put forward their case to defend themselves the FAA and stewards, if they find any wrongdoing, will put their case forward to argue against it, along with Renault and probably other teams that will probably want to know. And I think the key factor in this investigation, Courtney, is that when it does come out, and hopefully sooner rather than later, that if Racing Point have is legal, the car's legal, or in the other case, if it's not, what will most likely happen is further investigations will be requested to check the whole car. And that should have yeah, yeah. possibility. And that will have huge ramifications on Racing Point if that car is deemed to be illegal, i.e., as we mentioned, in some cases, an exclusion from the championship. And you don't want to see that, you know, regardless of how you feel about certain teams, you want to be seeing as many cars on the grid during a race. So let, let's hope that doesn't happen. Hmm. And this also has further ramifications on potential futures of drivers, one of which Sebastian Vettel, once again. Sebastian Vettel linked with Racing Point. Now, of course, we entertained the idea of perhaps Red Bull not really being a door that's fully closed on him. But with Racing Point, that seems to be the most likely seat. Of course, he's been speaking yeah. to Otmar Safnar. He's been speaking to Lawrence Stroll, of course, about the potential for joining Racing Point, which will be Aston Martin next season. And as an exciting prospect, that is, this investigation will definitely have huge consequences regarding whether Vettel will want to join them or not because of course if 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 the car is found to be illegal I don't think Sebastian Vettel is going to want to join a racing point car that's two years out of development compared to the rest of the field and, oh yeah uh, it, hit them, it hit them massively exactly and he said himself that he wouldn't want to join a midfield team he wants to be racing near the front and at the moment that is the case but what this means also is the potential where one of the two drivers at racing point will have to vacate their seats now I think Familiar Formula One fans will know that the chances are that that will most likely fall uh, with Sergio Perez losing his seat. Now, Sergio Perez, one of the best drivers in the field, arguably the best driver in the midfield, with the exception perhaps of one or two others, 
and a driver that has performed well for Racing Point over the years. But I think, in a way, because Lance Stroll and uh, Courtney, you mentioned Lance Stroll a lot and I've got praise for him, so obviously it's interesting yeah. to hear what you think of this. But I think, given how Perez has been seen by the fans and by the media and how well he's done in previous years, it's almost as if we're completely writing off the abilities of Lance Stroll. And quite frankly, I said before in a previous episode that I think Lance should be given a fair chance because, yes, his dad owns the team or at least runs the consortium that owns the team. He's very much funded his son's progress in the sport and that's not a dig because loads of drivers get into the sport with funding from one source or another. This one just directly happens to be from his dad as any good dad would probably do, I'd imagine. And it completely overlooks Lance's abilities. And Lance is a former Formula 3 champion, Euro Series champion. Same, similar award that Valtteri Bottas has won, George Russell, Lando Norris, all good drivers that I've named there. And Lance has been really good this season. Austria, the first race, he was hampered by engine issues. But other than that, he was brilliant in qualifying. And in the race, he was outstanding. It was an excellent performance. And... In wet conditions, difficult circumstances, I think it's fair to say he outperformed Sergio Perez, and it's not the first time he's done that in the racing point this season. Well, I'm I'm pleased with the weekend that last I had, and, I, and I'm, I'm pleased for him on the human level because it doesn't matter how rich or successful you are, you do have you, you do have thoughts and feelings and. I'm pretty much under the impression that he would have been receiving a lot of abuse the last week or so, given that there's a lot of pressure on the on well Perez's seat. Um, I saw um, saw online the other day that the former president of Mexico started a trend about um, saving Perez. So that that trended. So you can imagine that Stroll would have got a lot of abuse, particularly online, and. Um, yeah, I think I think he's just very much guilty of he's very much the victim of his family ties. Now I'm going to go to football a little bit, and um, for those of you who don't know about football, West Ham or anything, um, I'm sure you know who Frank Lampard is and how you know how a great player he became. Um, when he started off at West Ham, his uncle was a manager at the time, Harry Redknapp, and a lot of the fans felt that he was only getting into the side because of his uncle and um, things went sour you know he left he left for a rival and there's still a bad feeling towards Frank to the day but what you can't deny is that actually the guy is very talented you can look at the stats incredibly gifted and he was just disregarded because he was related to the manager and I'm, I'm not saying that last Joel is going to go on to be a Frank Lampard of Formula 1 but it's a shame to see someone's talent completely forgotten because of who they're related to. Yeah, and that's always a difficult thing to get over with some of the fans. And this is why I'm glad that we're finally seeing Lance in a very good car so we can finally see what the kid can do because he's exactly. clearly fast. And even if he's been performing as he has been, in qualifying in dry conditions, he's been a tenth or two off of Sergio's pace. That's really not a lot when you consider that Valtteri Bottas is about that much slower an ultimate qualifying pace than Lewis Hamilton most weeks. So, you know, I, I do think that the uh, money backing does do a disservice to Lance, and I don't think it's enough to say that 
he's talented enough to be in Formula One. I actually think he's very much earned his seat in Formula One to this point and definitely deserves to be on the grid. There's definitely worse drivers or poorer performing drivers at the moment than Lance Stroll when you strip it all and you know, adjust them pound for pound how they've performed. It's certainly... I mean, he certainly hasn't made too many mistakes as people probably think he has, to be honest. If you look through, he's actually driven rather well since his time at Williams. Of course, the first season was a bit difficult, but he certainly has improved. It's a very there difficult a, decision. There is, there, is, there is a stigma the last, the last few years, and, you know, I've been guilty of it. There, are, there, there is a stigma against paid drivers because it is a shame to see talented drivers leave the sport because... They don't have the financial backing, and I hate to see it. So that's why there is a bit of a stigma. But it's not going to be the case all the time. There are going to be occasions where the driver can have financial backing and be gifted. It doesn't ha- It doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. And I feel that's the case with Stroll. Well, Perez has financial backing as well, as do some yeah. other drivers. So, you know, there is that element to it. You can be both. And I think all the drivers have had backing at one way or another. It's just about what you do when you get to Formula One. That's just the nature of the beast. You have to have some level of financial backing, whether you're signed up to a team, whether you're sponsored um, by local governments or countries or companies, if you like. However it is you get to Formula One, everyone has their route in and it does involve some level of financial backing. I don't think anyone can get away from that. So we'll have to wait and see, of course. It's a very interesting decision that Racing Point are going to have to make, assuming that Vettel does want to still join them after the investigation, whichever way that goes. And, of course, that investigation, we're hearing that it, the uh, findings may actually come to light sooner than we think. So it might be in the next week or so. It might be the next couple of weeks. We'll have to wait and see. But it's definitely interesting. It's one Let's that's going to run on. Yeah. It's going to run Let's on this season. Let's hope it doesn't, because you, you kind of want to... We've, we've had we've had enough um, holding back and what-ifs this year, so let, let's hope we have a, a smooth season and we know how things are going into the future. Yeah, I mean, we're in a unique position where three or four drivers already know that they're going to be moving teams. Uh, it's something that we don't normally have this early into an F1 season. Of course, time-wise, it's, it's about right for silly season, of course. Hungary usually being the trap, the race that precedes the summer break where it all kicks off. But um, not this time, of course, for obvious reasons. But uh, we digress on that one. So moving on to Racing Point, we're obviously going from strength to strength at the moment, uh, to a team that once again had uh, had a very good sun- a Saturday, I would say. Um, but not a good Sunday. And that is Ferrari. Now, Ferrari, of course, on Saturday... Finishing in qualifying, probably as good a qualifying performance as they could have asked for, really. Sebastian Vettel and Charles Leclerc qualifying fifth and sixth, respectively, in dry conditions. And I think for the first time, we finally got to see how good that Ferrari is in ultimate pace and dry conditions. And on the surface, with the engine issues aside, despite being best part of 1.2, 1.3 seconds off the Mercs, probably the best they could have asked for, Courtney, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it was um, it was a big step forward from from Austria, where they struggled to get through to Q3. You know, and a, a, a team as big as Ferrari should not be worrying about getting through to Q3. So yeah, it was it was definitely a, a step forward for them. Um, 
But going into the race, um, we, we discussed this previously, Adam, they must have come out of the race itself with mixed emotions. Yes, and I feel... I mentioned this again in pre-season testing, of course, you know, you did as well, that Ferrari seemed to be alluding to strengths in their race pace. I mean, to be honest, they spent all that time trying to convince us that that's actually how fast they were going. We all thought they were holding back until the uh, horrible realisation that they were actually spot on the money. But um, (laughs) that's just the nature of Ferrari. You never believe them in pre-season testing, whether they're the fastest or the slowest. They never seem to show their hand. But unfortunately, it does seem that that's what they were doing. And in the race, this translated as well. I think Ferrari's issues, of course, the car is not fast. It's not drivable at the moment, especially for Sebastian Vettel, who loves a car that's very much drivable. Yeah. Having said that, though, Vettel, minus one or two little mistakes at turn 12 earlier on and then turn two when he went a bit wide, both times allowing Alex Albon to overtake him. Finishing sixth was probably the best, one of the most um, calmer, more composed performances from Sebastian Vettel but again I mean having a slow car is one thing but once again Ferrari their strategy choices and decision making uh, illustrated in two moments first of all putting Charles Leclerc onto the soft tyres very early into the race when a lot of F1 fans will know that Hungary is a track notorious for being a one-stopper with mediums to hards and Ferrari put him on the soft tyres after a few laps, which I thought was brain dead because it, it left him vulnerable. He wasn't able to use the soft tyres because the track, um, everyone was on the dry tyres and it was difficult to pass anyway. So the soft tyres were basically irrelevant unless you were out in front. And he was completely nowhere, finishing 11th in the end, considering that he was ahead of Sebastian earlier on in the race after the start. And then uh, the second one was Sebastian Vettel was told also to pin onto the soft tyres like Charles did. And he basically told his engineer, don't you mean the mediums? Um, And then eventually they put him on the mediums and that's why he finished in sixth place. But as you said, once again, Courtney, Ferrari playing the dunces, if you like, in terms of their strategy. And once again, Vettel showing to have that experience and know-how and... Um, I suppose confidence, if you like, as an experienced F1 driver, to basically correct his engineers and recommend the correct strategy whilst driving the car at 200 plus miles an hour, which is something Vettel, we've often said, has done too much. But it it just shows that Ferrari are not able to operate, at least in the right manners, and they keep making these mistakes that they cannot afford to keep making at the moment. Well, yeah... There are multiple issue, uh, issues at Ferrari. You know, I've said a million times on this podcast, there are deep cultural issues within this team. And it just it just shows with the multiple issues that they have. And, and strategy is one. They always seem to make high-profile mistakes. And you've and you got to think, you know, are they are they going to miss that influence on Vettel? Because he does, he does bring a maturity that might be missed. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that signs of being mature or anything, but I don't know, could the influence of Vettel be missed? next season and I'm, I'm sure I'm sure Ferrari will close the gap in terms of raw pace not completely but to some extent but for a team like Ferrari to get lapped mm. that that was I, I remember watching watching the commentary on um, Sky Sports and uh, when when Lewis overtook Vettel you know Martin Brundle put it perfectly he went this, this, this is a significant moment 
because yeah. it is for, for a robbery you know multiple world champions still the most successful team in Formula 1 to be lapped you know it wasn't like they crashed or anything yeah there was there was sloppy strategy but it wasn't like they crashed mm. they got lapped on in terms of raw, pla- on, of raw pace and it must that, that must have been a dagger in the heart for Ferrari yeah no absolutely very 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 difficultly dark moment for Ferrari um I mean, Charles Leclerc, you can obviously say he was a bit out of sync given how poor the strategy was. You can put that on the team. But Sebastian Vettel, there's no way ends about it. He was lapped on pace. And Lewis Hamilton, as we said often this season, it looks like Mercedes, when Lewis is out in front, he's almost like he's got pace to burn. He doesn't need to use that pace. And Mercedes' biggest problem at the moment seems to be just managing the car. Um, they don't need to extract that full pace, and no one's forcing their hand. If if that car outright is a second faster than their next car, which by the looks of it is the racing point, which is basically if you like their B team almost, given how many Mercedes parts that they do use um, outside the investigation, it's uh, quite worrying for a team like Ferrari, who we spoke about this off air that their engine issues has cost them at most tracks at least half a second in some cases three quarters of a second you adjust the delta based on their new car and they did bring their upgrades of course with them you would say that they are they would be second fastest but even then they would be still half a second three quarters of a second off the mercs at best it's quite worrying times at ferrari and i think the the problem at ferrari now is they they have this culture up up senior management at um, not Miguelo, uh, Marinello, where they do look to get involved in the team's operations more often than perhaps they should. And Matti Bonotto in a position where he is running the show, he's the technical, you know, he's he's leading the team, team principal. He's also the head of the technical side at Ferrari. He's too involved. I, I just feel like the structure at Ferrari is all over the place. And you have Matti Bonotto who's trying to do his best with a position where he, he was so good in the engine department of Ferrari. He was so good at the technical side of Ferrari. He really helped that team along since their woes back in 2014 and 15 to where they were two years ago when they had a championship winning car to where they are now, where they haven't really replaced him in that regard and put him into a position where he's kind of doing too much. And no team is structured like that. Mercedes aren't structured like that. You've got, you've got Toto Wolff, and you've got three people underneath him, and James Allison, uh, in particular, running the technical side at Mercedes. Uh, and you had Paddy Lowe before that, but obviously before he moved on. But you've got people there that entrusted to be running their particular departments and let Toto run at the helm, whereas Matty does not have that level of support. To the point now where uh, Toto Wolff probably considers Ferrari to be a bit of an afterthought. He's done talking about them and sacking Matty Bonotto. And I agree with these thoughts that he mentioned. He, um sacking Matti Bonotto or replacing him in the way that they've replaced uh, Mattiacci, Stefano Domenicali, Arriva Bene in the past, it's just not going to fix Ferrari's problem. No, they uh, if if they if they get rid of Bonotto altogether, then Ferrari are going to have some serious issues. Hmm. And um, I, I think, if, if I mean, we talked about this as well, it's probably worth mentioning, but Ferrari, we've so often said, you say almost on a weekly episode, they are a national institution, so I'm going to get that one in before you. Um, but but the problem with this is whilst it's great to have that identity that Ferrari have that no other team has this Italian identity the Scuderia the Tifosi all of that the great things that, that Formula 1 love about Ferrari that only they seem to have 
it can also come at a price where we've seen great people in the past. A James Allison, a great example. When you join Ferrari, you have to uproot your family to Italy. You have to learn the language. You have to embed yourself in the culture. You have to eat, sleep, breathe Ferrari. Now, whilst that can work, and it has done in the past, when you operate under that level of scrutiny and under that sort of system, it can cause the top talents from around the world to be discouraged from that and not want to join them. Or worse, they work at Ferrari, develop these great systems, not successful, and then move to other teams. I mean, how many Ferrari personnel over the last five years have left them and joined Mercedes? I, I couldn't even count. So many. Well, yeah, because I don't... Cause... I don't think teams leave for Mercedes just because they're the top team. They leave because it's pretty apparent that one of the reasons why Mercedes is so successful is because it's an enjoyable and an emotionally safe place to work. And who doesn't want that? What, what, what human being doesn't want to work at a place where they're encouraged and they're allowed to be creative and are allowed to speak if they don't agree with something? Because it's something that's often said in interviews with um, with with Mercedes and their drivers is that they're very vocal with each other they're very open if there's an issue they they discuss it and move on from it and I just get the feeling from, from I reckon within the team there's a big fear, fear culture and I, I think there's a lot of miscommunication and I don't think um, issues are dealt with properly and it, it, it's, it's painfully obvious in the races with the decisions they make with strategy and stuff mm. yeah and I agree with that and as I said, I do have to mention this because I'm not saying for a second that Ferrari should not shut down the factory in Maranello and build one over at Brackley like Mercedes have done. But there is a reason why all the top teams and all of the teams in Formula 1 have at least have a British base. And I think it might help Ferrari to have something like that. You know, Even if it's like a division of what they have in Maranello. Um, th- that will not happen, of course. I mean, not even anyone's wildest fantasies. But I think what we've seen as a result of this is now we have a culture at Ferrari where it is discouraging the top people from working there. Or if they already have been there, they've moved on and moved on to rivals who can bestow their secrets and use those things they've learned at Ferrari and about their car that's worked so well. I mean, look at the side pod. The famous side pods that Ferrari introduced back in 2017. Almost every car on the grid has them. Yeah. And and the amount of and even Mercedes have them now, and those are only things that have been knowledge that's been transferred to other teams from personnel that have left Ferrari to go to these teams. And this isn't me saying that Ferrari don't have the best people in their team. Um, they have very good people working at their team, but perhaps what's costing them year after year is the fact that they are losing people because of the fact that they are so secluded and isolated in this old bubble that they have that really has existed since the likes of Jean Todd Braun Schumacher have departed back in the mid-2000s. And and, and this is perhaps why Ferrari have not won a world championship since 2007. Yeah, I I, I think, you know, we've had the discussion many times. I just feel it's, it's a bit of a a loosely used word but I, I would say that the atmosphere behind the scenes of Ferrari is pretty toxic and it has been for quite some time now mm. I think you know you even look at Fernando Alonso the way he behaved I, I know I know he has a bit of a reputation but 
it, that his, his time at Ferrari definitely seemed to bring the worst out in him as well. Quite possibly. And uh, I think we'll move on to Ferrari now, uh, or from Ferrari, I should say, on to, just before we wrap this episode up, just a quick shout-out to the Haas team, who, I mean, what a great job that they did. What a brilliant strategy call that was from Haas. I'm not sure if it was Gunther Steiner that called it or if it was um, it within the team, but whoever it was, absolutely brilliant job. Um, and for those of you that didn't see, what Haas did at the start of the race, they were starting well down the order at the back. Before the start of the race... They pitted both of their drivers on the formation lap to put on dry tyres because we were at that point where the Inters were starting to go and the dry tyres were going to be the tyre to be on despite Max Verstappen's little incident on the form, uh, before he'd even got to the grid, which thankfully they fixed, so well done to Red Bull there. But they basically pitted them onto dry tyres and after about four or five laps, everyone else had pitted for the dry tyres, so they were at the front of the field. And it's almost a pit stop, wasn't it, for them? Exactly, and and it was absolutely genius. Of course, the downside is though, and I should mention this, is that they did get a penalty for this. Both drivers were issued with a ten-second time penalty because uh, they breached Article Twenty-Seven Point One, which is basically means that the driver has to drive the car alone and cannot be instructed by the engineers on what to do in the race. Now, of course, people saying in response, "Well, what about Lando Norris with this Scenario Seven overtake?" That's a bit different. That stuff is permitted. There is a list of stuff that engineers can say, uh, and that's one of them. Whereas the pitting on the formation lap, in terms of box, box, box in the race, they're two different things. Because obviously the race hasn't started and they're being told to do something they wouldn't have normally done. Now, I think one reason why this would probably hit home is because Danny Kivia actually did ask his team on the formation lap if he could pit. And they didn't respond, yes or no. So... Perhaps they were aware that if they did tell him one way or the other, they would get that 10-second time penalty as well. Um, but nonetheless, Kevin Magnussen and Grosjean. Grosjean had a bit of damage, which cost him a bit later on. But Magnussen still finished in the points. He finished in 10th, which is Haas' first point of the season. And, uh, and it could be an important point as well. Absolutely. I mean, given how short the season could well be, we've got 10 confirmed races with perhaps a few more to be confirmed in the near future, with uh, rumours about Imola and Hockenheim surfacing potentially. Uh, I heard Matt Macy was going to Imola to have a look at that for a potential race in October. So that's promising as well. A third race in Ferrari country. I can't remember the last time we've had that in a Formula 1 season. But it's definitely becoming, as I predicted, a very European championship. But uh, nonetheless, a great job from Haas. And uh, it's moments like that, those bits of genius, which I really do enjoy in Formula 1. I think we do not see enough of, especially in this era. So hopefully we'll see a bit more of that. But... um, yeah, I think we've pretty much covered everything for the uh, review of the Hungarian Co- Grand Prix Courtney, wouldn't you say? Very, very happy with the job we've done today. Great, and I hope you guys are too, of course, listening to it. Um, we hope you're enjoying these podcasts so far. I mean, we're 20 episodes in, and I'm loving recording these every week. I know we say this a lot, but we really genuinely are enjoying this, and we're so glad this season's underway because we've got stuff to talk about. Um, no review, of, no preview, of course, of the British Grand Prix. That is not until the weekend after this. Uh, the weekend of beginning of August. So, of course, we've got the double header coming up. We've got the British Grand Prix, and then we've got the 70th anniversary Grand Prix, which is also at Silverstone. So, um, just giving it a different name. That's what they great, do. Great, great circuit. Always, always um, delivers great racing. Yes, and I, I, yeah. it's, it's, it's definitely my um, top three of the season. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I, I, once again, I, I'm expecting the next chapter in the battle. Between Hamilton and Bottas in this season, I'm hoping that Bottas 
can perform like he did in Austria because Hamilton obviously has got the upper hand at the moment. The last couple of races, he's been very, very strong. And Bottas, the odd little mistake has crept into his driving a little bit. So I'm just hoping that that can be eradicated rather than it fall apart like it did in 2019 last season. But nonetheless, um, as I said once again, uh, thank you very much for tuning in. Of course, make sure to like, share and subscribe to us if you're listening to us on YouTube. And of course, if you're listening to us on your favourite podcasting platform, whatever that may be, we're literally everywhere these days. Make sure to like and uh, download and share this with your friends as well if you've got any Formula One enthusiasts as well. And of course, once again, we should point out and plug, we've got the first part of the DNF1 Beginner's Guide to Formula One airing on Friday the 24th of July, first thing in the morning, wherever you are around the world. So make sure to check that out only on the YouTube channel, I'm afraid. So if you do listen to us on your podcasting platforms, you will only be able to see that video on YouTube. So make sure to check that out as well. And of course, follow us on social media. We're at DNF1 underscore podcast. That is on Twitter and Instagram, in particular Instagram, because Courtney put some great stuff over the weekend and throughout the week as well as that you can interact with as well so make sure to follow you're too both kind Adam you're too kind well I've got to got to give you um, a thumbs up where I can call and you do a lot of work on that and it should be uh, noted and the fans will definitely enjoy that as well so hopefully we can get more people involved in that and engaged and produce more content in the future and uh, I think that pretty much covers it for this episode we've run over a little bit but I think we'll be okay and uh, all that's left to say is thank you very much once again Courtney for co-hosting this episode with me yeah enjoyed it yet again mate things are going well let's keep it up brilliant and uh, of course i've been adam burns your other host on this episode and i uh, hope you enjoyed this video and we will see you in the next episode of the dnf1 podcast see you soon Podcast Network.